Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Richard Krause, the film critic, broadcaster, and author. Richard is the film critic for CTV's news channel and CP24, Toronto's news channel. His syndicated Saturday afternoon radio show, The Richard Krause Show, originates on News Talk 1010 in Toronto and is also available as a podcast called The House of Krause. He is also the author of 10 books on pop culture history, including the 100 Best Movies You've Never Seen and its aptly named sequel, The Son of the 100 Best Movies You've Never Seen. For a decade, Richard was the host of Real to Real, Canada's longest running television show about movies, and today he continues to share his keen interest in pop culture as a frequent guest on numerous Canadian radio and television outlets. Welcome, Richard, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Uh, I'm doing very well, and I'm in downtown Toronto in my home studio. So since the pandemic hit, uh, I've been, <laughs> I moved inside, and half of my office is wired for television with lights and all the cables and things that go along with that. And then the other half is for radio. I'm sitting on the radio and podcast side right now. And uh, I'll be glad when we can pack all this stuff up and get back to uh, going back in the studio. And, and is that because you prefer to be kind of out on the street talking because you like to be in the studio? You had enough of being locked up at home? I like the, yeah, well, a, a little bit. I mean, I like uh, the give and take that goes along uh, with working in a creative business. And, you know, the best way to make that happen is to be around other people and to spark off them and to see what's going on. And everyone has an opinion in the kind of jobs that I have, and I like to hear them. So uh, it's easier if you're in the same room rather than sending a, an audio file to someone saying, what do you think? What do you think? And then waiting, staring at your email for them to get back to you. So I prefer that face to face. Now, did you get a chance to do any traveling post pandemic period? A little bit. We spent almost all of April in New York. Uh, I was there uh, originally to work uh, for a few days. My wife came down with me. Uh, and then we came home and we already had another trip planned for about a week later. So we went back uh, and stayed for uh, another couple of weeks and, you know, caught up on all the things that we missed about New York. We usually go two or three times a year. It's a quick and easy flight. Uh, so we got to see lots of interesting things on Broadway. Saw Daniel Craig and Ruth Nega do uh, Macbeth. We saw Hugh Jackman in the uh, Music Man. We saw Tracy Letts' fantastic new show called The Minutes, uh, a, a parody called uh, POTUS, and, and lots of other stuff. So um, we packed uh, probably about two years worth of sightseeing and, and uh, events into the, the month that we were there because we missed it so much. You're going to need a vacation from your vacation. Kind of it felt like that when I came back, but uh, it was it was plenty well worth it and we're off again uh and i think my wife told me today it's 32 days we're going back and we'll be there for a little while again this time. <laughs> that's fantastic <laughs> with the toronto international film festival opening this week i have to ask is this like your christmas week or your super bowl week this is the big week on your calendar i'm guessing yeah, kind of. I mean, I, I, well, yes, yes, it is. In terms of, of just being as busy as I'm probably going to get during the year, this is it. I approach it with a sense of anticipation and a sense of dread, though, every year, because I know what's about to come. This is my, I don't even know how many years it is, 26th or 27th year of covering the film festival. And I understand what's about to happen. <laughs> and what is about to happen is uh, you uh, end up feeling for certainly the first week of the festival when it's really intense and there's everything that seems to be happening all at once you end up feeling like you're just being pulled in a lot of different directions it's a great feeling on one level because you're seeing some of the best movies of the year you're meeting interesting people i like talking to the people who are standing in lines to go in to see movies just to see what their experience of the film festival is and what's what's happening with them what drives them to stand out in the rain or the blazing sun or whatever it might be you know, to see uh, whatever movie they're lined up to see. I love all of that. Uh, but it is, uh, it, it, I feel a little frayed by the end of it. <laughs> now, do you have a defined role, Richard, at the festival? We know you've done it for so many years. Mm -hmm. Are you working for many masters? Do you have a game plan? 
Uh, well, I, I cover for CTV, so I'll be uh, covering for CP24. Uh, I'll be reviewing uh, films on the CTV News Channel uh, for ctvnews.ca. Um, I've written some freelance pieces, which will be out in, in various places over the next little while. And what you do during the film festival when you work, as I do, is you kind of bank things. So I'm seeing things now that probably won't open until November, December, January, February, March, whatever. So I can get months ahead of myself here. And that's one of the things that, that uh, for someone like me that tries to always be as current as possible, uh, you have to be. Every week you start at zero. It doesn't matter how hard you work in one week to try and cram in all the screens, to try and see everything that you have to see. Uh, on Sunday morning, when I do my final hit of the week with CTV News Channel, you tear up those notes and you got nothing for the next week. You have to start all over again. And so the film festival gives you a good opportunity just to bank stuff and, and to uh, already get ahead of the writing, uh, which is, it takes up a great deal of time. Well, I have to tell you that I had uh, my late friend, Greg LeClaire, he used to take the 11 days of TIFF off work mm -hmm. to attend. He would forego all that salary, whereas you, Richard, are being paid to be at each and every <laughs> moment of the festival. This sounds like a dream job. You must be get so many uh, jealousy looks from everyone else. Everyone wants your job. Yeah, everyone wants a job, I suppose. If you're a film fan, it's a pretty great job. I mean, there's nothing there's there's nothing wrong with being able to uh, see these movies. I've seen a lot of them in advance, uh, which is good. The festival starts this week. I'm already knee deep in movies that I've seen already, so that's pretty cool. Like it, it there there is a lot that is great. You will never hear me complain about having this job or or the access that that being around and and having done this for as long as I've done affords me at the film festival. You will never hear me complain about that i made a rule a long time ago there's a few rules that i always you know stick by and Let's they're so them. practical and absolutely dull but it's like stay hydrated it's the only way you're going to get through the 11 days of the film festival uh plan ahead and uh you know enjoy it so often when you go to uh, a film festival party which i don't typically do anymore uh, because they take time away from the actual work that I that I do. But occasionally you you, you swing by one and, and have a drink and talk to people. And you'll find that uh, about probably by the Sunday or, or certainly the first Monday of the film festival, this is all anybody says. I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I've just I'm burned out already. I'm so tired. And I made a rule to myself ages ago. Don't let those words slip out of your lips during the film festival. And in fact, I often say, usually on the first day of the film festival, I tweet something like, the first person that complains about being tired after you know covering the film festival gets unfollowed by me because it is just simply uh, a, a it should be a treat to be able to do this and yeah it is kind of exhausting uh, but it's what we do and and you know it's it's just part of the deal you just have to keep going like the energizer energizer bunny Richard I like it the rules are good attitude and pacing you mm -hmm. must have pacing when let's Paul. go with your permission all the way back and get the Richard Krause story. Where were mm. you born? And please tell us about your upbringing. I was born in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, a small town on the south shore of uh, Nova Scotia. I don't remember Bridgewater particularly well. I do remember growing up in Liverpool, though. We moved when I was quite young, grew up there uh, from the time I was probably three or something like that. And uh, my dad owned a furniture store which was uh, kind of cool, though, in the sense that we lived in a big apartment on top of it. So uh, it was a, a two-story furniture store with, like, what you would imagine, uh, you know, a, a store in the 1970s would have lots of, like, gold brocade furniture and avocado green uh, refrigerators and that sort of thing. Uh, but it was kind of a magical place because it had, at one time, had been a vaudeville theater. And so this little town that I grew up in had uh, kind of extraordinary uh, buildings in it because there was a time in its history where people thought, oh, you know, this might be the next Halifax. It might be the next uh, Boston with a great harbor. 
And uh, that didn't happen. But in the meantime, while they had this, you know, these fantasies that this town was going to take off, uh, they built a movie theater that seats hundreds and hundreds of people in a town that only has, when I lived there, about 1,500 people in it. Uh, there was a vaudeville theater. Uh, there was a, a grand hotel with a giant dining room. Like, we had, we had the things the amenities of a much larger place. Uh, we just didn't have the population. And the movie theater, the Astor movie theater, uh, was a place that I grew up, you know, going to two or three times a week. And it was kind of great because we were at what I can only imagine is almost the butt end of the distribution trail, certainly in the 1970s. So we didn't get Saturday Night Fever or Star Wars on the opening weekend. We okay. got them six months later. And so to keep the screens full uh, back in those days, they would show whatever movies they could get. And the, the amazing thing about it was that for me, um, I went to see everything. And so some days it would be, you know, Bruce Lee kung fu movies. Other days it would be Tartofsky Stalker. It, you just didn't know. Uh, but I went to see it all. And it was, I think, the thing that has given me kind of a love of, of just all movies because um, I, I think that if something's good, it doesn't matter uh, what genre it is or what, what kind it is. It can be great superhero movies just as easily as there can be, uh, you know, great Tartofsky movies. So um, there, is, there is no difference to me between the two. And I think that's born out of growing up in this tiny little town with a great movie theater that yeah. has really eclectic programming. It, it punched above its weight, as they say. Sure did, yeah. Now, but Richard, by necessity, by necessity, and for no other reason. It wasn't like there was someone going, "Oh, this Russian science fiction movie sounds fascinating. <laughs> Let's bring it in." It's like, "What print can we get this week, Bill?" And that's what they show. Wow. Now, Richard, your first job was at 16 years old as a nighttime DJ at CKBW in Nova Scotia. You were the mm -hmm. youngest DJ in the Maritimes. How did this possibly come about? Well, it came about uh, in much the same way that Donald Sutherland got his job at the same place. So years later, I'll tell you about CKBW in a minute, but years later, I was in Los Angeles and I was interviewing Donald Sutherland for something. I can't remember what the movie was, but it was for TV and we were just about to start in a light blue. And uh, we had to stop while they by changed the light and it took a few minutes and he was, it, he looked unhappy about the whole situation of just having to sit there with someone he didn't know and it was awkward. And I said, hey, I used to work at CKBW and so did you. And his eyes perked up and he told me the story of how he got the job and it's remarkably similar to the way I got it in that he was living in Bridge, the, the radio station was in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. It was the only radio station in that area. So it's the one that everybody listened to. I grew up listening to it. And, uh, and when he was living there, when he was a teenager, he wanted to work there. And so he just went to the building where it was every day, waited in the parking lot when he figured that the announcers would be coming out. And as they'd come out, he'd say, hi, I'm Donald Sutherland. I would really like a job. Would you give me a job? <laughs> and they said no for six months, but he kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And eventually they gave him a job. And that's kind of how I got the job as well. Oh, yeah. I just sort of made a nuisance of myself uh, until they, they gave me the job. And you know, back in those days, you had to do a lot of stuff. If you were working for a small radio station like that, you had to know how to write the news. You had to be able to read the news. You had to be able to do uh, obituaries. I had to write obituaries that we used to read on Sunday mornings. You used to have to um, record commercials. So you'd have to learn how to edit uh, reel to reel tape and all that kind of stuff. There was just a lot of, of skill set that you had to have if you were going to do it. But I drank it all up. And uh, I frankly, it wasn't very good. I lasted about a year, I think. But that place taught me a bunch of stuff. It taught me that I loved radio. And it taught me that I just liked the atmosphere of a radio station. I just, I, I, I dig the vibe of it because it's so immediate. You're speaking directly to people uh, and you can comment on stuff. You look out the window and you can comment on something that's happening. Uh, if there's a car accident outside, you can, you can be the first to report on it because you're right there and it's that immediate. And I love that. Um, but it also taught me uh, a thing about personality. And broadcasting is is all personality. And for me, 
uh, when I started, I thought, well, I'll be the guy that knows everything. So when I introduce a Rolling Stones song, I'd say, eh, it's the Rolling Stones, and they've had uh, 21 number one hits or whatever it was. I'd just be a bunch of trivia, just shooting trivia out. And when I eventually got fired, and, and I deserve to be let go, uh, in this business, it's not if you get fired, it's when you get fired. So in, in, in this business, when, they, when CKBW, when I had that, at the time, terrible meeting with my program director, he said, you've got the voice, you, you, know, you seem to love it, uh, but people don't know who you are because you never talk about yourself. And the words that he said that have stayed with me ever since are, people wanna hear about people. They want to hear your story. They wanna to get to know you. And when I look back at all the broadcasters that I really admire uh, in terms of, I mean, news readers are something a little different because you're, you try and keep your personality out of it a little bit for bias reasons. But uh, on the radio, I love people that I feel like I know. I feel like I know their personality. And uh, that to me is, is important. And I've tried to, to bring that through in everything that I've done since that terrible time where I got fired <laughs> from CKBW. <laughs> well, everything, as you know, from your past, works towards helping you today. And we're going to get back to your personality, Richard, because that is one of the things that stands out. And what a great story, your icebreak with Donald Sutherland. You, you, uh, you now have a little alumni club. That's right. There's two of us. Yeah. Well, and, and most of, I mean, amazing broadcasters went through there. It was one of those stepping stones. Uh, and I don't even know if this is so much the case anymore, but it used to be when you started in radio, you would start in a small market you know, somewhere in, in the East Coast, you'd probably start in PEI and then you'd move up to a slightly different market, a slightly different market. So people were coming and going all the time that, you know, sort of on their way to Toronto or Vancouver, one of the, you know, the giant markets. And so, you know, you got to, to meet a lot of people and, and learn from a lot of people. And that, you know, at 16, that's what I should have been doing. I really probably shouldn't have been a DJ. <laughs> Now, you did make your way, Richard, to Toronto. 1980, you moved to look for work as a writer. Mm. Uh, if my math is right, you were about 17 years old. How did your yep. parents react to you moving to Toronto? Um, well, it wasn't great. <laughs> my mother had died just before that. Uh, and she was American. And so there was a, a time when I thought, well, I'll just, you know, I'll probably end up moving to New York or I'll end up moving um, somewhere. Because we had spent so much time there. She was from Boston. We used to spend a lot of time down there. Um, I had an uncle in Kentucky and he was like, well, you know, there's no question. You have to move to Kentucky. It's the greatest, you know, state in the, in the, in the Republic. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I really liked uh, the larger than life uh, kind of, stylings of my American relatives. They they seemed exciting and they all drove like big 21 foot long cars and, and had, you know, there, there was a real sort of sense in those days of American exceptionalism. You know, we've just been to the moon, we can do anything. And and so I thought about it, uh, but my brother was living here and, and I'd come to visit a number of times. And so I thought, well, you know what, I'll start off in Toronto. I'll get my feet wet in Toronto and then see what happens. And uh, for the most part, I've lived here <laughs> ever since so it's been a long time when you first got to toronto richard where did you land where did you live and, and what was your first job if you remember i worked in a terrible or i lived in a terrible place i lived in um a little apartment with my brother we shared it uh and it was 110 dollars a month uh, and it was probably only really worth about 60 bucks a month, to be honest. <laughs> you you overpaid awful. at 110 a month. We overpaid at 110, and uh, I slept in the kitchen. I slept on a cot in the kitchen, um, and then there was another room that, that, that he slept in, and then he ended up moving out, and I ended up taking over the place, and uh, it was just an absolute hovel. And not the last absolute hovel that I've lived in, but that was, it was certainly not great, but it was exciting. You know, I was, I was young, I was 17 years old and, and it was exciting to, you know, be out and, and have this place. Um, and then I did a bunch of stuff. I did write a little bit. I was able to sell a few things. Um, but back in those days, selling articles was, you know, for me, you know, five or $10, like it wasn't money that was really going to get you anywhere. But when you're paying $110 a month for rent, you know, uh, it, any little bit helped. Um, so I did that and I worked at Mr. Green Jeans in the Eaton Center. Yes. Uh, I, was a, I was a bartender there for a long time. And, uh, and, you know, that's back when that place was the busiest restaurant in the country. It was enormous. I think it seated 
400 or 450 people or something like that. And I used to work on the front bar quite often. So I'd get there. I still remember you, the, the punch clock went in three minute increments. And so, uh, they had us start at like 12 minutes after 10 or something like that. And they were very precise about, you know, you being on time. So I'd punch in and I'd start setting up the bar and, you know, I'd, I'd start putting the bottles out and I'd look out and there would be 20 people waiting to get in at quarter after 10. And then by 10.30, there would be 100 people. By the time 11 o'clock rolled around and we opened the doors, there'd be 400 people outside. They'd fill the restaurant completely, and there would be a wait for tables until midnight. It was extraordinary. I mean, I've never worked in a place that has been that absolutely uh, chaotic. It was controlled chaos because, you know, it had to be. Otherwise, the place would have spun off its axles. But it was a really fun place to work. And I had Jim Carrey had sat at the bar uh, a, a couple of times. Um, Robert Plant. I missed Robert Plant. He was playing at Massey Hall, apparently. And I came in and I saw like a mop of blonde hair walking out the door. And I'm like, that looks like Robert Plant. And they're like, yeah, that was Robert Plant. And uh, so... Simon LeBon used to buy out the back of the restaurant. He, is, he was dating a woman from Toronto, and she liked uh, the food or liked the buffalo chips or something, whatever was very specific <laughs> to the restaurant. And uh, and so when they would come in, it was at the height of, of the fame of Duran Duran, and uh, he couldn't just come in and sit down. So they he'd buy out the back of the restaurant. He'd buy out... <laughs> 200 seats of the restaurant and sit in the middle with this big buffer zone of empty tables all around him. <laughs> Simon LeBon and his buffalo chips, that is the uh, the highlight of this yeah, uh, yeah. interview so far. <laughs> I, was, I was a huge fan of Duran Duran. I was a huge fan of Mr. Green Jeans. I can certainly vouch. I remember it being just, as you say, it was the place for to be for uh, uh, teens it, it, and older of that era. Oh, it was wild. I mean, uh, when I say that we filled up by two minutes after 11 they had said we would have an army of hosts seating people and then then the wait started and we would say to people like you know go uh go shopping for an hour and a half and come back and they would <laughs> it was, it's incredible to me and they didn't have those disc buzzers or they couldn't text no. you back then no. so no no, nope, it was just if you showed up, you showed up. And they also had a, a, a smart thing just beyond the front bar where I used to work. Uh, they had the Emporium and they just sold doodads. They just sold things, whatever it was. I can't even remember, but just like little souvenirs. But it was a great way to keep people in and spending money before they got into, um, you know, buying uh, lunch or dinner or whatever. So <laughs> it was a it was a well-oiled machine, but it was absolutely chaotic. I just, you know, you would walk in and you would just sort of brace yourself <laughs> at five to eleven. You just knew what was gonna what was coming. And it was kind of like I'm feeling right now for the film festival, but it was every single day. Now, Richard, you have a very distinctive look, your physical characteristics. You use your hair and glasses are the logo on your mm -hmm. website, which I have to compliment you. That's it's all about branding. And I thought it was great branding. Are you an Elvis Costello obsessive? What do you base your distinctive look on? Well, I mean, yes. Yes, I am. Uh, <laughs> I wrote a book about Elvis Costello. Yes. Uh, yeah. And uh, and I've interviewed him. So yeah, I am an Elvis Costello uh, obsessive, but this look, uh, well, I don't know if it predates it, but um, it, it evolved over time and, the, and it evolved for a, a number of reasons. So when I was uh, a, a kid living here, um, I had a, a girlfriend whose uh, sister went to the most expensive hair cutter in the city. The guy okay. that, that he used to cut Cher's hair and he used this to do And Sorry to interrupt you. This is Gary Chowan. He has been a guest on this podcast, and Richard, I guarantee you he's going to listen. No, well, this, no, this is a different guy. This is a guy called Murray Cooper. Oh, and Murray okay. was yeah, Murray was another showbiz guy. There were a few of them, Robert Gage. There were a few, a few of them, but Murray is one of them. And, and he uh, he liked us for some reason. You know, he was like, yeah, come on in. And he would cut our hair for free. Back in those days when a haircut from him was 75 bucks, which would be like paying $750 today, probably. Yeah. Uh, he'd come in and, you know, we, we'd come in uh, to his very fancy salon and drink champagne and he'd cut our hair. 
And he thought that I looked like a choir boy. He's like, you've got to do something with your, your hair. Fine. You, you just, you, you look like a child. Uh, and so uh, he suggested, you know, just like, here, here's some gel to see what you do. And then just over time, it became kind of, for a long time, it was sort of like rockabilly hair. I had a lot of young man hair. And it yeah. was, it was, it was uh, all piled up on top. Over the years, it's calmed down a little bit, but it's still kind of the same. And then the glasses, um, I've just always liked really distinct glasses. I think if you are going to uh, wear glasses... You should think of them like you do uh, your other accessories. Like if you're wearing a tie, you want a tie that matches your suit. If you are, you know, wearing uh, jewelry, it should be stuff that speaks to your personality. And so I have a few pairs of glasses that I wear, and, and they change from time to time. Um, but they are absolutely necessary. I'm kind of blind without them, so they are. I, I once I put them on for the day, they never come off. <laughs> now, Globe and Mail writer James Adams has said that Richard has the most famous hair on Canadian television. <laughs> this is your chance. Richard, do you want to give a shout out to your eyewear brand and your hairstylist? Well, uh, listen, okay, my, my eyewear brand is Tom Ford. I, I like Tom Ford glasses. Um, I also uh, like uh, a place called Specs on Church because they have incredible uh, glasses there. And over the years, I have, I have bought lots of glasses there. I get my hair cut at a place on Young Street just south of Summerhill, um, called Joseph's Hairstyling. And it's just been there forever. Uh, the man that cuts my hair, mostly, uh, has worked there for 60 years. He's 80 years old. And I uh, cannot... When when they close that place, God forbid that it ever closes, I may never get my hair cut again. I'm, I'm such a fan of an old-school barber. I like bars that have been around for 50 or 60 years at a minimum. I like bartender or uh, hair cutters, barbers uh, that that have been around forever. I love going in there. I look forward to getting my hair cut just to hang out with these old guys and, and see what's going on. Well, it's crazy because my aforementioned buddy Greg also went there. He used to rave about it. And I don't want you to implicate yourself, but does Joseph still feature the uh, Playboy and Penthouse magazines on the coffee table. It, it, it's it's a little bit more rare now. I think that they probably are still there underneath the uh, the stack <laughs> of magazines that are there. But it really is an old school barber shop, and you know I'm an old school kind of guy, and I like that. Well, as a friend of this show, Gary Chow, and uh, said on this very podcast, hairdressers have the best stories. So I can see yeah, why you do. go there to yep. to kibitz. Yeah. And I love, I was in there you know, a week or so ago getting my hair cut, and the guy next to me, uh, I would guess was in his 70s somewhere, and they were talking, and the bartender, the, the barber said, how long have you been coming here? He said, I got my first haircut here when I was 12. <laughs> and I just, I, I love that. I love that so much. Richard, your height and your tailored suits also make you a very distinctive fella. Do you uh, do you feel constrained now? Like you can't just jump in a tracksuit and go around the corner. You always have to get gussied up when you leave. Or I, I don't always get gussied up when I leave, but I feel very comfortable in a suit. And when I first started on television, um, people had sort of stepped away from wearing suits or certainly wearing ties. Uh, a little bit and I thought well I'll make myself distinctive I'll bring all that back I didn't have any money though I wasn't I, I, I didn't have a, a, a ton of cash so I, I would buy um, vintage stuff and mostly vintage ties and things and so I, I created kind of a look I think for myself that way and it's a look that I like and um, I you know as I say during the pandemic, I haven't had to wear suits for <laughs> very often, uh, but starting uh, on Thursday, I'll be uh, I'll be wearing them every single day for the next ten days, and and kind of looking forward to it. I like the idea of getting dressed up. When I was a waiter uh, at Mister No at Mister Greenjeans at uh, Southern Accent on Markham Street, another yes. legendary Toronto uh, restaurant and bar, um, during the summer, you know, it would be. 35 degrees uh, outside on the patio. Uh, there was no air conditioning and it would be equally hot inside in the kitchen was probably 42 degrees. And I still used to show up in work, uh, to work, and, you know, black pants, shine black shoes, a, a, a white shirt and a tie because it made people respect you a little bit more. And I just felt that the, the first time people lay eyes on you in that 
setting is very important. It kind of determines how they're going to treat you afterwards. And, uh, and so I did it. I mean, it was terrible some nights working in, in, that, uh, in the full getup, but uh, I think it was worth it. First impressions are always the most important. Absolutely. Richard, let's talk about movie reviews. You have a great tagline on your website. I watch bad movies so you don't have to. Talk a little about that philosophy. Well, I watch everything. Uh, you know, it, it is a little less now, frankly, uh, than it was. But when I did Real to Real, for instance, um, I was seeing 12 or 13 movies a week, probably. And and reviewing them, uh, different movies at different outlets. So I felt that, that I kind of had to see everything. And I loved it. I, I loved the idea that when you have a look at the width and breadth of everything that's happening out there, you get a, a real sense of what's going on. What's in the zeitgeist? What are people thinking about? What movies are popular? Uh, and and that, I, I think, is an important uh, aspect of, of what I do, just to know what's happening out there. Now... I don't see 12 movies a week, probably, but I still see nine, I bet. <laughs> I mean, it's still quite a few movies, and it will increase as we get closer to the film festival. But um, I uh, think that it's important uh, to know what's happening. And, you know, the idea that you can just drop in and, and review one movie every now and again, I'm sure people can do it. I, I have no interest in that. I like, to, I like to get out there and see them. Well, we love on this podcast to go behind the scenes, see how the sausage gets made. Uh-huh. How do you physically review movies? Why don't you take us through the process? Where do you see them? Are you literally taking notes uh, from a public theater? What is the film review process for you? Um, there's a lot of different ways. Um, typically speaking, I like going to a movie theater and I like seeing them with an audience. So um, I will go, often there are promo screenings, uh, meaning that they'll screen something that hasn't opened yet officially um, and they'll do it with a, a full house and I will go to those and I have my trusty notebook right here that I take with me and I scrawl notes all the way through uh, films. Um, that is my preferred method. The secondary method are press screenings, which are only for the press. They're usually uh, during the day. There's all, Typically every day there's one at 10 o'clock and often at other times during the day. And you go and it's only film critics. So there might be 10 or 15 of us in a room watching uh, a new film. Uh, then, you know, third is probably uh, a DVD or a link. A lot of this stuff now comes via the internet. Um, heavily encrypted links that we get to watch. And that's how I've been seeing stuff, mostly uh, for the film festival this year. There have been a lot of links around, so I've been watching things at home. Um, it is not my favorite way to do it. It's it's economical for my time, uh, and it means that I can watch five movies a day if I have to quite easily without running from theater to theater. Uh, and then there are little screening rooms. The Shangri-La has a great screening room. There's all sorts of little, little nooks and crannies around that you can see films in as well, and the studios will often use those. But uh, for me, I like uh, the communal experience. I think that there is no better way to see a movie than to see it in an audience full of people and to hear them laughing or crying or screaming in terror uh, at what they're seeing on the screen. It is hardwired into our DNA. It is something that we have always done from you know the time that people used to sit around open flames and tell stories based on the dancing flames that they would see through to the you know vaudeville and beyond. Uh, we are now... Uh, uh, hardwired, I think, to enjoy entertainment together as a community. And that's my favorite way. What kind of setup, if I may ask, do you have at home? If you're seeing all these movies, I hope you've got the best system and the most comfortable chair and the best popcorn. I, I have, I don't eat popcorn so much anymore uh, because uh, it's like little razor blades for your colon. That's not my line. I think Norm Wilner uh, told me that. But uh, it, it is. Uh, it's good. Yeah, we have giant televisions uh, and, um, you know, all the, the sound bars and things that you need. We have all this stuff. I, you know, honestly, I'm not a um, an audiophile uh, in really any way. Um, yeah, I don't have you, you know, people. I know people that have like surround sound at home and all that kind of thing. I do not. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not quite there. I'm not interested in that. <laughs> I want to ask how the Internet and social media have changed the reviewer's job, the critic's job. You could argue that today, everyone is a movie critic. Yeah. Yeah, there's never been more movie critics, uh, and there's never been fewer people making a living doing it. 
Mm. And, um, you know, it has democratized it, sites like Letterboxd and, and, you know, IMDb and everything else. Anywhere you can leave a review, uh, uh, people do. And, I, you know, it's valid. This is a a popular uh, medium. This is a medium that uh, is meant for the masses, meant for people to see. And meant for people to discuss. So why not get out there and, you know, have your thoughts uh, heard? I am not always a fan of some of the the, the more toxic sides of uh, fan culture where, um, you know, groups will, will gang up on a film uh, because they don't like the casting or they don't like, uh, you know, some of the themes contained within. Uh, and you'll see that. It's called review bombing. And, and the Lord of the Rings show just had a, a little episode of that. Um, that uh, Amazon is trying to deal with by just making it not accessible for uh, people who aren't, by profession, film critics, to uh, comment uh, on their sites. And I think that's too bad that it had to come down to that because it's, you know, it's a consumer service. It is something that I think um, everyone should uh, have a say in. It's a democratic process. You know, it's like bars are the last, you know, bars and movies are kind of the last great democratic places, you know, for the price yeah. of a movie ticket or the price of a drink. You can sit down and enjoy uh, a conversation with whoever happens to be sitting next to you uh, or watch a piece of art together. And that's pretty great. One of the big uh, platforms now for the public, Rotten Tomatoes, you yourself, Richard, are on Rotten Tomatoes as a tomato meter approved critic. How did yep. you achieve this designation? You apply. Uh, it's yeah. It, you apply, and um, there is a strict kind of protocol that they have, and uh, they uh, apparently uh, go through and have a look at your reviews and decide whether they want them or not. Uh, and uh, they they were gracious enough to want mine, and so uh, every week my reviews are up there. And you know it's it, it's uh, it's an interesting platform to be on. A lot of people use it. Um, I have to be very careful. I think about uh, the quotes that I put on my Rotten Tomato review. So if you go and and click on uh, a review for uh, whatever three thousand years of long, you'll see my picture, you'll see my rating, and then you'll see a little poll quote about the review. And I'm. I know that 99% of the people that are going there aren't going to click on the link and read the full review. They're going to only go by the three or four lines that I have uh, next to my avatar. And so I'm very careful about what I put there. I try and you know sum up the real heart and the essence of the review uh, in as few words as possible for that little pull quote. And you just made me think of something, Richard. These pull quotes, sometimes we see them in ads. Mm-hmm. Are your pull quotes allowed to be used in ads? Do they have to get your approval, or how does that process work? Uh, yeah, they they yeah they do generally speaking uh, get your approval. If I have uh, written a review that comes out uh, and you know I guess is in the public domain, I have often seen a quote from mine taken from the inter- from the review uh, and used in an ad. Um, you know, I, I'm of, of two minds of, of quotes on ads, though, because uh, years ago, I remember having a, a quote. Someone said, hey, I thought you didn't like, I can't even remember what the movie was. I thought you didn't like such and such. And I was like, I did not. He goes, why are you, why are you quoted on the poster? And what they had done is I had written something like, you know, this movie could have been good, but wasn't. And they just used the word good, Richard Krause, from, you know, or whatever it was. It was something like that. And so um, I kind of went off that a little bit. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I have been quoted on a, on a few of those. And, and you know, it's it, it, when you first start, it's kind of a cool thing to see uh, your, your name, you know, plastered on an ad for a big movie. It, it, it is kind of a rush. <laughs> Now let's talk a little about TIFF. As you, we've talked, it's uh, starting this week, running September 8th to the 18th. We were fortunate to have Cameron Bailey on this mm-hmm. show just a little while ago, and he is very simpatico with you. His key point was the communal experience is what's yep. most important. It was what he is looking most forward to with the return of in-person TIFF. Cameron Bailey and the job he's done at TIFF. Do you want to talk about that? You've seen this festival go for so many years. Yeah, Cameron's uh, done a great job. I mean, the, here's a, a, a you know someone who uh, took over from Pierce Handling, who's been there for you know was there forever it seemed like, and and really uh, kind of defined what the 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 festival was 
for his period. Now Cameron has come along and and expanded on that and and has made it you know very much um, I think a, a festival of the 21st century or of 2022. And the pandemic in the middle of there, uh, I have not t spoken with him about this, but that could not have been easy. Uh, you know, having a, a festival for a couple of years that was a hybrid, I think that uh, TIFF pivoted nicely and and figured out how to present something uh, and something that was good. I, we certainly, you know, enjoyed it and, and watched the films at home. Um, I hosted a press conference uh, with them that was shown at a drive-in, which I thought was amazing. Uh, you know, uh, we they it was the whatever anniversary it was for Full Metal Jacket, 40th or 45th anniversary, something like that. And I interviewed uh, Vincent D'Onofrio and, and um, a handful of other people, and we just did it, and it was projected at the drive-in before the movie. How cool is that? Like, that yeah. was a, a, a sign of, I thought, out-of-the-box thinking that, uh, you know, is the kind of thing that you need to survive when you're a, a, an organization that is as big as TIFF is and has as many eyes on it as TIFF does. You have to be constantly involving. And I think that Cameron's been uh, really good at, at making sure that they're always uh, looking forward and not looking back. Now for this festival, as it opens, Richard, is there anything in particular you are looking forward to seeing and anyone in particular you are looking forward to meeting or interviewing? Well, I'm looking forward to a lot of stuff. Um, I've seen uh, a fair amount uh, of stuff already, and there's a few movies that I really liked. Uh, I Like Movies, uh, which was written by Chandler Levac and directed by Chandler Levac, who writes for uh, The Globe and Mail, is a film critic for The Globe and Mail, and it's a really kind of charming uh, uh, coming-of-age story about a film-obsessed young guy who works at a video store. And, uh, and it's really funny and sweet and, and uh, kind of heartbreaking at the same time. Um, so I like that movie a lot. Um, a Triangle of Sadness is something that I'll be very curious to see how people respond to because it's divided kind of into three parts in the middle section is some of the out, most outrageous filmmaking that I've seen in a very long time. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to see what uh, what the reaction is to that. I really loved Moon Age Daydream, the David Bowie, and I, it's not really a documentary. It's, it's an immersive experience uh, based on the life of David Bowie, and it's got a lot, and, and I'm a David Bowie uh, obsessive. Okay. And so I was thrilled to see the the footage that has never been seen before and uh you know the the it's narrated essentially by david bowie from uh old interview clips and things and it and it doesn't really tell you the story it's not a cradle to grave documentary at all it really is about just immersing you in the the, the sound and the vision and the whole thing and to give you an idea of what david bowie was like and what he was thinking as an artist and it's uh it's an extraordinary film so i liked all that stuff i'm looking forward to seeing dolly land uh which is ben kingsley playing salvador dali uh in the later part of his life um you know dali has always been someone that i've been kind of fascinated with i think kingsley will be great and curious to see uh what mary heron the director who is canadian and, and directed lots of things that we liked like american psycho and i shot andy warhol um it, what she does with it because uh she's a really interesting director so lots of movies to to have a look at and anyone in particular you're interested in meeting do you already know who you'll be meeting in terms of celebrities or that kind of comes up as as you go through the festival it's half and half right now i've 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 uh, been booking some things you know i'm always looking forward to uh interviewing anyone uh who um, has done something that's a little different and interesting. And that's why I'm interested in meeting uh, the director of Moon Age Daydream, Brent Morgan. He spent years culling through thousands of hours of footage of David Bowie and interviews and the whole thing to create something that is completely new. It's a different kind of thing. It's not, it, 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 it needs to be seen to be believed, I think. And it needs to be seen, it's, it's a true cinematic experience. It needs to be seen on the big screen. Um, I think uh, watching it at home or, you know, when it eventually goes to streaming or whatever, it just won't have the same impact. Um, so I'm curious about picking that guy's brain a little bit. Now, Richard, you've been to so many festivals, lots of stories. Let's talk about a few of these interactions. You once repaired dust in Hoffman's watch. I did. 
And, you know, it was funny. The other day I was watching All the President's Men, and I, I'd sort of forgotten about it because it was, you know, he, he it was a, a few years ago, five or six years ago. Uh, and I don't remember the movie we were uh, supposed to be talking about, but we were sitting at a table together. And he was answering my questions, and it was, you know, it was it was going well. It was Dustin Hoffman. It was cool. But he was distracted by his watch, and I could tell he kept looking at his watch, and he couldn't. It, it, it was it was kind of getting in the way of the interview. And so finally, I said, like, is there something wrong with the watch? He goes, Yeah, and it stopped. I did. And so I took it from him, and it was a fairly easy fix. I didn't yeah. have to take it apart or anything, but it was a fairly easy fix. I gave it back to him afterwards. Amazing interview. I, I <laughs> his watch. I put his mind at ease. <laughs> And got a great interview afterwards. Well, you, you you were not only a hero to Dustin Hoffman, but apparently Harrison Ford called you brilliant and beloved in front of a large crowd of people. Yeah, this is a funny story. Uh, so I had hosted a couple of live events with Harrison Ford uh, over the years. And on one of them, after we had done one or two of them already together, uh, I was meant to come out and introduce him first, and then he would come out. I'd ask him a couple of questions. Then we were playing uh, whatever the movie was that we were talking about. And uh, so backstage, as I was about to go out, um, he said, uh, or I said, you know, as I was walking out, I'm going to go introduce you now. I'll say nice things about you if you say nice things about me. <laughs> and I was about to step on the stage. And he said, what do you want me to say? And I said, I want you to call me beloved and brilliant. And I think I, I threw in like, you know, and Toronto, Canada's most beloved film critic or something. And I walked out on stage and I'm like, blah, 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 ladies and gentlemen, Harrison Ford. And of course he comes out, the place goes mad for him. Uh, and then he waits till the uh, audience quiets down a, a little bit. And he says, well, you know, I, I have, first I have to acknowledge the beloved and brilliant Richard Krauss, Canada's number one film or whatever it was, whatever words I had put in his mouth, but he actually did it. And my mother-in-law was sitting in the front row and she was <laughs> biggest Harrison Ford fan. And so that earned me a, like a lot of brownie points. Well, it's hard work with anyone's mother-in-law. So th that was it. That must've put <laughs> you over the top. That's right. Tom Hanks decided to sing happy birthday to Hugh Grant. And uh, you somehow got involved, Richard. Well, yeah, I was hosting a, a press conference uh, with Tom Hanks and Hugh Grant and like a lot of other people. Uh, it was for the Wachowski siblings film Jupiter. What was it called? Jupiter Rising? I'm, I'm drawing a blank here on that one. Um, but it was a big movie with a lot of star power on this stage. And uh, people were, you know, game to play. Everyone was sort of game to play, except Hugh Grant didn't look all that happy. And then I find <laughs> out uh, that it's his birthday. And I mentioned it. And I was sitting uh, close to Tom Hanks. And Tom Hanks said, well, we have to sing him a happy birthday. So we started to sing. But it was Tom Hanks and me at first. And then it, it, it crescendoed and everyone in the room did. But it was just one of those kind of surreal moments where I was thinking, this is like one of the oddest parts of the job is that I am singing Happy Birthday to Hugh Grant with Tom Hanks. It just, you know, it's, it's, an, odd, it's an odd thing. It's Surreal funny. is the word yeah. I'm going to use for it. <laughs> now, Richard, you've hosted so many press conferences, but some caught my attention in particular. Mm -hmm. How was the Justin Bieber press conference? It was weird. It was, uh, he was uh, fairly young. I don't know how young, but like 16, 17 years old. And, and you know, at the very peak of his, um, of his uh, teen idol status, you know, people still love him, but there was that moment, man, where he was just at the very center of popular culture. And this was at that moment. And uh, we, we brought him in and there have been only two times that I can really think of that I've seen this kind of response uh, from people. So we have the press and the press typically are, you know, a little jaded, but they, they, they let in a group of teenage girls and the, the they make a, a sound unlike, you know, any other sound that occurs naturally in, in, you know, in humankind when somebody like Justin Bieber walks onto the stage. And there was that sound and just the, the excitement on their faces made me think of uh, the old footage of the Beatles that you used to see and they'd cut yeah. to the audience and, the, you know, these young women are crying and screaming and they're just so overwhelmed. And I love that. I just love the kind of, 
you know, passion that, that, that brings up. And I, it, for me, um, it's a, it's a super cool moment. The other time that it happened was I it was just before the movie Twilight opened and I interviewed Robert Pattinson and uh, Kristen Stewart. The movie had not yet opened, but was getting just an enormous buzz. So I interviewed them at a hotel downtown somewhere and then CTV called and said, listen, they're, they're going to be at the 299 Queen Street, the, the much music building, essentially, uh, to, do, uh, to do some interviews. And there's a few people milling around down there that are very excited to see them. Can we go down and we'll get some footage of you talking to the, to the fans that we'll use and cut in with your interview? And I said, sure, whatever, I'll go down. I go down, it's raining. Uh, I go down and they said a few people, there were probably 3,000 people uh, waiting around to see them who have been waiting around some all night. They were wet, you know, cold. And so uh, the camera's following me and I uh, said to one of the, the young women that was right in the front line, I said, hey, uh, you know, are you excited to see the movie? And they said, oh, we love Robert Pattinson. And I said, I just met him and I put my hand out just sort of, I just gestured and they grabbed me and pulled me into their crowd because I had just met Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart. It wasn't like anything other, nothing to do with me except that I had just breathed the same air as their, as their idol. And it was uh, at once exhilarating and terrifying to people that I can only imagine what it's like to be Robert Pattinson. You're lucky you, get to, you got to keep your arm, Richard. Yep, that's right. The other uh, press conferences that caught my attention were Brad Pitt and Madonna. What do you remember about those two? Uh, Brad Pitt, I remember walking out onto the stage and uh, it was Brad came out first and then I was right behind him and I was unaware that there was going to be a photo call on the stage. And so as soon as he hits the stage, there's probably... 50 photographers and they're all yelling Brad, 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 look this way, smile ma. and flashbulbs, hundreds and hundreds of flashbulbs, they're taking thousands of pictures uh, and I, I later found out they had two minutes to take pictures they probably take, I don't know, you know just those automatic cameras, they probably 10,000 pictures in, in, in that amount of time but the, it was blinding and I stepped out of the way because no one's there to take my picture so I stepped out of the way and uh, waited till it was over, came back out we sat down, we did the interview, it was great and then later uh, I was interviewing him for television. So an hour later, I uh, sit down, I'm sitting across from him, and I said, man, that was, uh, that was quite something, what happened earlier today. And he's like, what? And I said, well, the flashbulbs and the lights. And he was like, oh, oh, yeah. No, that was wild, man. And the thing about it was, it was for him so unextraordinary because it happens absolutely everywhere he goes. And, you know, it, it, it's an insight to, I think, uh, what it's like to be, you know, that famous. People often ask me, like, you know, what was, uh, I'll interview Brad Pitt, what was Brad Pitt like? And I say, well, you know, he's as normal and nice as anyone who is that famous is probably going to be because, yeah. you know, that life is just a different life. And I think that that is, you know, that that's a good example of it. And Madonna had directed a film and I had her and the, the, uh, the cast up uh, uh, for a movie called W. And, uh, and she was great. Uh, she was hardcore. She's there to do a job and she, you know, the whole thing. But I, I, I really liked her. And then the next day, I read in the newspaper that uh, there had been rules that Madonna had said, like, no one who uh, was working backstage was allowed to look her in the face and the volunteers <laughs> weren't allowed to. And it was complete nonsense. But it's one of those stories that, that gets uh, put out there and then becomes part of, of the legend. And uh, for me, I was, I was there. Uh, people were looking her in the eye and not turning into stone. So uh, <laughs> I think... I, I, I think that uh, that needed to be corrected, but it's part of the it's part of the legend now. That's a, that's a great one. You have corrected the record on that. But I did want to ask you: when you are hosting this press conference, are there rules? Like, are they asking you to kind of stick to a script, talk about the the commercial product being talked about? Are you allowed to ask your own questions How, behind well, the no, scenes? I, How do things work? I always and only ask my own questions, um, and you know, we're there to talk about the movie. We're there to talk about the film, but. Like, you know, the call back to me getting fired from CKBW. My interest 
uh, isn't about what lenses you use to shoot the movie. And there are some people that are all into that uh, and that kind of thing. I don't care about that stuff. I want to try and figure out uh, what the personal connection is that people have with the, with the film. And so if it's a director, typically speaking, they've worked on this project for longer than anybody else. And so you want to find out why. What makes you give up? three years of your life to get a to get a movie made what was it about this story and uh you know for actors i want to i want to find out a little bit more i want to dig a little deeper and find out how they connected to the character that they're playing so i think my interviews are probably a little different than uh some others that that people do but it is just simply a product of of that advice that i got as i was being fired and walked out of the building <laughs> you know when i was uh, 16 or 17 years old you got to bring yourself into it. And I, I'm sure the people being interviewed appreciate it. They're not being asked for the 10 millionth time the same question. They get something new. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not bringing myself into it so much. I'm trying to bring their personalities into it. Mm. Um, and, and that's what's important. I, you know, uh, when you watch a lot of interviews, you know that people who have been interviewed a lot have fallbacks. They have answers that they use. And I try and work my way around that. And luckily, when you're hosting a press conference, you speaking, generally speaking, you have an hour with them, so you can you can you know noodle around a little bit and and get honest answers uh, and and different answers. I think then you're going to get if you're uh, just doing one of the forty junket interviews that that person will do later on that are all four minutes long. And they're designed to sell a product. The interviews that I try and do are a little different than that. Now, Richard, all these celebrities you've met after all these years, whether it was an official interaction being filmed or whether it was off camera, or even you ran into them on the street, did any celebrities really impress you as a person or exceed your expectations of what you thought they'd be like? I think Hugh Jackman is always someone that I think of when I think of uh, people who are uh, just genuinely cool. And nice. Uh, my every interaction with him, whether it was to do an interview, I was there uh, to in Los Angeles to do an interview with him uh, years ago for something. And there were a lot of us. He was he was going to be sitting there all day, you know, answering the same questions over and over again. Uh, and he came into the to the hospitality suite where we were all sitting, and he said, "Oh, there's a lot of you here. Let's get started early so we can get you know we can make sure that everyone gets their right amount of time and the whole thing." And he actually started you know, early, which never happens on these things. And then uh, I've interviewed him in, in on stage a couple of times. I've interviewed him in hotel rooms, you know, uh, around uh, uh, the country a, a couple of times. And he's always just gracious. He's just gracious and, and tells stories. And he's a good storyteller. So him, Lady Gaga was great. Uh, you know, I loved, I loved her. And uh, th you just have these weird moments. I remember hosting the, the, a Star is Born press conference with Lady Gaga and uh, and Bradley Cooper and you know everybody and um, I'm backstage and uh, we're waiting to go on and Lady Gaga comes in Sam Elliott is on the telephone talking to somebody and Lady Gaga comes in and she's saying hello to everybody and Sam's on the phone and she comes up and just gives him a little kiss on the cheek and he goes puts the phone in and goes thank you darling in that voice <laughs> that Sam Elliott voice and honestly. It was the happiest I've ever been, was just to hear that voice. And, Thank you, darling, as she walked away. Amazing. <laughs> now, Hugh Jackman and Lady Gaga, good people. Anyone that you, and you can name names, I don't want to put you on the spot, yes. who underwhelmed you and kind of disappointed you from the world of celebrities? Well, it's an interesting thing because generally speaking, in these interactions, people are kind of on their best behavior. They may not, you know, you're not going to be friends with these people. I'm not looking to be friends with any of these people. We have, there's a contract, right? The contract, unspoken contract, is that I will sit across from you and ask hopefully interesting questions. You'll give me interesting answers. That way you get to promote your movie and I get something that's worth putting on television or the radio. That's the unspoken contract. And um, most often, generally speaking, people people uh, abide by it. There have been the odd one uh, that that I've walked away thinking, I don't know why that person bothers doing interviews. But um, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of a name right now. I know I've cut a few interviews short 
just because I'm thinking uh, everyone right now, that person, the celebrity, me, camera people, the sound people, we're all wasting our time right now because no <laughs> yeah. one's ever going to – this will never see the light of day. But, yeah, it's, well, it's, 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 it's rare that it happens, though, to be honest. Well, I love the way you put that. It is a contract. There's two parties to every contract. If you're not pulling your end, it's not going to go. Yep. As we wrap up, I really appreciate your time, Richard. You've been very generous. My wife, Vicki, is one of the uh, handful of listeners <laughs> to this show, and she <laughs> wants me to ask Richard, are movies today too long? It depends on uh, no good movie, as Robert Ebert, Roger Ebert said, uh, no good movie is too long and no bad movie is, is too short. And so there are a lot of movies that are clocking in at, you know, two and a half, three hours now. And it's a lot. Uh, it, you, you have to be, uh, you know, up for it and ready. But if the story works, the story works. I, I do think that, um, you know, some of the streamers, uh, really need to hire editors before they hire directors and just give them a hundred million bucks and say go make a movie, uh, because I, I I do think that we're seeing a lot of of long movies for the sake of just length, um, but you know as I say no good movie is uh, too long. <laughs> now as we uh, come into TIFF, I don't know how you keep up with everything going on. Do you watch TV? Do you enjoy sports on TV? What do you like doing outside of your job I, responsibilities i have never been a sports guy never ever um i may be one of the few canadians who's never seen a hockey game uh, <laughs> uh -oh. i yeah uh, but I'm, I'm not a sports guy uh but i we do yeah we watch uh some television i mean during the pandemic uh absolutely we you know i i i hunkered down uh and started to watch some series you know the uh, better call saul just ended and is one of the greatest television shows that I've ever seen. And it took me a long time to figure it out, why I was digging it so much. And I realized, oh, it's not about Saul. We all know what happened to Saul. It's about Kim Wexler. It's about, uh, um, you know, that character and, and, and her journey. And when that resolved itself on that show, it was, for me, one of the, the great moments on television. Excellent. Well, Richard, as we wrap, what are you working on for the remainder of 2022? Obviously, TIFF, but beyond that, and, and what's next for you? There are a number of things coming up. Um, there's a book that I'm working on right now um, that kind of uh, will take um, a look back at a career spent interviewing famous people, um, but not because uh, nobody cares about the reviews. I mean, the, or the interviews. Like, nobody cares about an interview that I did for a movie five years ago. I, it, it just, you know, it has, it has less impact. Uh, these things are kind of ephemeral. They're, they're meant for the moment. But I began thinking, like, I've just interviewed so many people in so many odd situations. What did I learn from them? Hmm. And what did I learn? So the, the, the book will be called something like... Uh, you know, accidental life lessons that I learned from the rich and famous. And it's everyone from, you know, Elizabeth Taylor uh, to Allen Ginsberg and, and, you know, Harrison Ford and everybody else uh, that, I've, that I've spoken to. But what did I learn from the interview? So it's kind of self-helpy, uh, but hopefully uh, a little funnier and maybe even a bit more surreal than that. That's great. Lessons learned. What a great theme. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I just think that when you look back uh, at at the width and breadth of it, uh, you know, for real to real, I did over four thousand of these interviews. Wow! And and I thought, and that's the, and that was eleven or twelve or thirteen years ago. So I mean, there's probably there's another probably ten thousand interviews since then. And yet, you, you I, I think back on the on the highlights of that, and and the experiences, and you know, what do you take away? You have to learn something from each and every interaction. Otherwise, you know you're wasting your time a little bit i think and to hear about when this book comes out and to best follow you and all your projects richard where should we follow you twitter is probably the easiest uh just at richard Krause. everything all my social media is just richard Krause. so it's easy i'm easy to find on instagram and and everywhere else excellent well thanks for joining us and i hope you have an amazing tiff festival experience i hope so too that is my plan <laughs> And to the listener, thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. On behalf of Richard Krause, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. 
The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.